Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father, truly there is none like You, the Son and the Spirit, or one true God. There is none like You in heaven, there is none like You on the earth. We confess that we have more ignorance of You than we have knowledge of You, for You are infinite. You are great and we are small. You are majestic and we are low. Our finite minds cannot comprehend all that You are, all that You have been, and all that You forever will be. And yet we pray this morning that in Your wonderful grace and mercy that You would as it were, a lisp to us this morning and speak to us in a way that we can understand. We might grasp Your infinite beauty. We might see You, our majestic God. We might revel in the privilege it is to know Your truth. And that we might delight in the knowledge that You give us of who You are. Would you humble us under your word this morning, we pray. And would you lift us up into the heavens themselves to gaze upon your beauty as we listen to your word this morning, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Him on foot from the towns. When He went ashore, He saw a great crowd. And He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to Him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And He said, bring them here to Me. Then He ordered the crowds to sit down on the ground. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of those broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men. Besides women and children. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is one of the more famous accounts in 
the Gospels. Maybe it is so because all four of the Gospel writers speak of this account. It's actually the only miracle of Jesus that is in all four of the Gospels. And so they clearly saw this as an important event in the life of Christ. In the early church, they would often use the symbols of the Christian faith, a a loaf of bread and a fish next to it. And the early church saw this as a significant event in the life of our Savior as He was on earth. There's so much here, but this morning what I'd like to do from the text is I'd like to bring forward three points for you. First, our Savior of unmatched compassion Second, our Savior of abounding truth. And finally, our Savior of sufficient supply. So first, our Savior of unmatched compassion. If you miss this from the text, then you absolutely miss the the emphasis of this text. The unmatched compassion of our Savior. Matthew says here in our first verse, verse 13, he says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Well, what did Jesus hear? Well, we have to go back to last week and the text from last week to look at what it was that Jesus heard. And what he heard was the martyrdom of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist had been beheaded, that he is now dead. And so, as Matthew says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And we can understand this. If you think back over the course of your life, think about when you have lost something of significance, maybe you lost a competition. Worse than that, maybe you lost some possession that you had, or still worse than that, you lost a job. Or maybe you had the pain of losing a friend. Or worse still, you you lost a brother or a sister. You lost a mother. You lost a father. You lost a spouse. You lost a child. You think of everything that you experience with that loss. We don't often want to talk when we have lost something of significance. Funerals tend to be more silent than weddings, because loss steals words out of our mouths. I've gone to the hospital to visit a family that has just lost a a loved one. I walk into the room or walk into the waiting area, and, and more often than not, it's quiet. They don't want to talk. And they don't want me to talk. Often what I do, if I do anything, is I may pray a short prayer, open the Scriptures and read a short passage, but more than anything, it's usually just sitting there. It's silence. When we experience loss, most of us want a little bit of solitude. We desire a little bit of peace from noise. We don't want too many questions. And we can't handle people putting demands upon us in the midst of that moment. We just want to be away, to be silent. Yes, to pray, but mainly to be away from people. 
When Jesus had just heard of this tragic death, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And John was his cousin. Even more than that, John was engaged in the ministry of Christ's kingdom and put to death for it. It it is a shadow to Christ of the things that were going to come in his life as he sees John put to death. Loss. Opposition. There's maybe no two more exhausting things in life than loss and opposition. So he gets away. And then to think that John is not simply Jesus' cousin, but John was the prophet who had come before Jesus to prepare the way before him for Jesus' ministry. Jesus' respect and love for John is great. He said in Matthew 11, as we saw a couple of months ago, he said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This man is not just his cousin. This man is not just a great prophet in his eyes. This man is preparing the way for him. This man he considers the greatest man who has ever lived. But he's more than that. He's also one of Jesus' own sheep. He's one of Jesus' sheep who has been martyred for the faith, been martyred for Christ's kingdom, been martyred for Christ's glory. So in His humanity, Jesus is tired. And He's escaping the noise and the demand of others. The grief that Jesus is experiencing here in the text is very real. This is not make-believe grief. He was truly human, even as He was truly divine. Even as He is truly divine, He is truly human. And death is an enemy. And when death encroaches upon the life of Christ here, He mourns, He grieves. This is not how it was created by Him to be. Death is not the way it's meant to be. We can so quickly lose that perspective. I've been watching over the last, seems to me, the last 25 years. There's been this growing movement in our culture, our culture which absolutely hates to face death. We do everything we can to distance ourselves from death. I've been watching the past 25 years as It used to be you would show up at a funeral and everybody would be dressed in black and there was a somberness and a mourning and and now many people don't even call them funerals. It's just a celebration of life. It's good. Let's celebrate the life. Let's celebrate who the person was. Let's celebrate what They did in this earthly life, but not at the expense of mourning the death. Death is an enemy. This isn't how it's meant to be. People want to have an upbeat spirit when someone dies. Don't want to be brought down, but that ignores the fact that death is an enemy and we should grieve. 
We should grieve when those close to us die. We should grieve when anyone dies. It should cause real lament and sorrow. Man was formed from the dust of the ground. It's an absolute abomination that man returns to the dust of the ground and becomes part of the dust of the ground again. Grief's the right response. Even Christ in his humanity felt the need to get away and to grieve and to lament in silence and in prayer. And that's what makes this text come alive. It goes from black and white to technicolor television when you see it. As Matthew tells us in verse 13 that when the crowd heard of Jesus' departure to that desolate place that they followed him and that is, as he was going across the Sea of Galilee, the people ran as fast as they could and carried people that were ailing along with them and got to the top of the Sea of Galilee so that when Jesus' boat arrived on the Sea of Galilee, they beat him to the spot. He just wanted some space to grieve and be alone. Yet he doesn't respond like I know I would be prone to respond. And here you see the unmatched compassion of our Savior. When he sees the crowd, a great crowd, as Matthew tells us, he was not disappointed. He wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He did not lash out of them, leave, leave me be. He says no such thing. He didn't lecture them about the need to love others and respect their personal space. He didn't turn away from them and head in the opposite direction. Matthew tells us, quote, when he went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. He deserved compassion. And yet he is the one who extends the compassion. I came not to be served, but to serve, he said. And that's what he does. He gives his life to them in the moment. He doesn't hold it back. He makes no excuse. He, he gives himself to them in the midst of His grief. When He looks upon them, He is moved with compassion for them. His love for them is so great that He just begins ministering to them. Think about this. The Lord Jesus, whom angels bow before in heaven, whom do His will whenever He sends them, He says, go and they go. And in his grief, he stoops, he stops in the midst of his grief to minister to these people. If I go to a baseball game and a baseball player just takes a, a few moments to sign our, our kid's glove with his autograph, he all of a sudden becomes the favorite baseball player in our house because, wow! What a great heart that man has. What compassion. He's so busy. And he stopped to sign our baseball glove. The Lord of glory is grieving. And just wants a moment by himself. And he sees a great crowd. 
And he has compassion on them. He looks upon our sorrows. He looks upon our trials. He looks upon our troubles. And they are not lost on Him. I love how the psalmist speaks about it. He says that every one of our tears are kept in His bottle. He counts all our tossings upon our beds at night. It's not lost on Him. And he has compassion for his people. Compassion unlike anyone or anything else. Second, I want you to see our Savior of abounding truth in this passage. He has compassion for them. He's moved for them. And he's moved by his commitment to truth. And to understand his compassion for them in this text, you have, to, you have to look outside of this text, outside of this passage. So I want you to go back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. And if you flip back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, you'll see here that Matthew uses the same terms that he uses here in Matthew 14 when he says this. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. They were harassed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The people were leaderless. That phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of like an army without a general or to speak of uh, a king, a, a people without a king. Ezekiel 34 is that famous text which speaks of it in detail where Ezekiel is taking to task the leaders of Israel because he says that they are shepherds over the nation of Israel and yet they are not caring for the sheep. No, in fact, he says that they are abusing the sheep and they prove to be no shepherds at all. They treat the people with harshness. They injure the flock. They scatter the sheep. These people... Matthew, that they've jogged around the Sea of Galilee to the top of the sea so that they could meet Jesus because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They aren't led by shepherds committed to truth. And so they aren't being loved. And so Jesus looks upon them with compassion, with love, and He begins to teach and to heal. Matthew tells us of the healing, and Jesus' healing is further evidence of His compassion, but all the other Gospels, when they come to this account, the feeding of the 5,000 and Mark and Luke and John, they all emphasize His teaching. And I think Matthew is trying to do the same. He's picking up that language from Matthew 9 so that we know that Jesus is teaching in this context. But Mark 6, Mark says this, He had compassion on them because... They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. His compassion led him to teach many things. Luke tells us in his account that Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. 
Luke 9, He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. He, he welcomed, He spoke, He taught, and He healed. He's the great shepherd. The great shepherd who makes His sheep to lie down in green pastures, who leads them beside still waters, who restores our souls, who leads us in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. I have two paintings in my study downstairs here in the church that when I sit at my desk, I look at. The one on the right is of the, the Westminster Assembly, the Christian men that gathered together there in the 1640s, churchmen who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms and the Directory for Public Worship. They met for close to six years. They had 1,163 sessions together to write these confessions and catechisms to articulate the doctrines of the Scriptures. And that painting reminds me of the need for truth. It reminds me to labor hard like those men for doctrinal precision. To be faithful. The painting on the left is a, is a painting that two of you here in the congregation gave to me. It's a Rembrandt. Well, it's not a real Rembrandt. If it was, I got quite a pastoral bonus a couple of years ago. But it's a painting by Rembrandt. And it's of Jeremiah sitting there weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And he's weeping... Because he loves the people of God. And they're suffering. And they haven't walked in repentance and faith. And that reminds me to love the sheep and to have compassion. Truth and love. Compassion and doctrine. They go hand in hand. You don't know truth unless it's dripping with love. And you don't know love unless it is founded upon truth. And Jesus, as the great shepherd of the sheep, He gives Himself having compassion for these people, and then He begins to teach them the truth. He doesn't separate either. Love and truth, they go hand in hand in the life of Christ. They go hand in hand in His ministry. They go hand in hand in the ministry of the church. Even the multiplication of the bread is meant to point to this very reality. Jesus will provide bread for them as we'll see. And in doing that, He's pointing His listeners and He's pointing us as the readers to a greater need. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. This is often an argument in Scripture, a way that the Scriptures argue from the lesser to the greater. What do I mean? Well, Jesus is reminding the people that even as they have grown physically hungry, so their souls are spiritually hungry. And now the people, they understood this in part. They had chased Jesus from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. But in another respect, they don't completely understand it. And no doubt that is true here this morning. That's true of 
think we could say of probably all of us, if not most of us in this room, that we understand that we're here for some benefit or we wouldn't be gathered together in this place. We don't understand how great that benefit is. Jesus is taking their physical hunger to remind them of their spiritual hunger and pointing them to the answer that He alone is sufficient for filling all their spiritual appetites. That He alone is sufficient to to fill all of their spiritual hunger and your soul is growling in hunger until it is satiated in Christ. In John's Gospel, Jesus rebukes the crowd the following day after He feeds them. He'll say this to them. He'll say, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. To stop following your bellies. You have a greater hunger than mere physical pains of hunger. You have a spiritual hunger. And when I fed you, you 5,000 plus with that bread, it wasn't meant to just be an end in itself. It was meant to point you to your need to feed upon Me. To feast upon Me. Here is where all your spiritual appetites are satisfied. He calls himself there in John 6, the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he even takes it a step further than that. And he says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at that, a whole bunch of disciples depart. That's too much. To feast upon you, Jesus. To eat of your flesh, Jesus. Yes. To feast upon me by faith. And that will satisfy all the cravings of your soul. And a whole bunch of the disciples leave there in John 6. Jesus will turn to the 12 disciples there and he will say to them, Do you want to go away as well? Peter, who tends to be the spokesman for the disciples, maybe because he is just a a zealous man with a quick tongue, and he answers Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Psalm 85, in Christ Truth and mercy kiss. Kiss. There's nowhere else to go. You're looking for your soul to be satisfied. It is in Christ. There's nowhere else to go. 
Third, we see a Savior of sufficient supply as we look to Him in faith. The disciples come to Jesus. They're concerned about these people, this great crowd, and it's now getting close to evening. Most likely there were two evenings in, in Jewish thought. The first one happened at 3 o'clock and the second at 6 o'clock. So most likely this is at 3 o'clock. And they come to Jesus and they are concerned about the crowd not having food and they want Jesus to send them away to the villages to go around so that they can find food to eat. And Jesus replies in verse 16 to this concern of theirs and He says this, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now you can't see it in the English, but in the Greek that you give, it's, it's given an emphatic position. It's a, he is pressing this in upon them. The emphasis is upon the disciples themselves giving all of this crowd, this huge crowd, this great crowd as Matthew says, them giving them something to eat. Now why? Why does Jesus do this? They're showing compassion. They're concerned for the people, rightfully so. Some commentators will say, well, Jesus wanted them to actually go out. He wanted the disciples to go to the villages around and uh, collect as much food as possible. He wanted them to exercise their resourcefulness and industry. But that's nonsense. Uh, they're in a desolate place, as Matthew tells us. He says that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. If there's just one woman and child for every man that was there, that's 15,000. Some estimate that it was high as 50 or 55,000 that were there. Little villages and towns couldn't supply the food that would have needed, been needed for all of those people. So why does Jesus charge them, you, Give them something to eat. I think there are two reasons. The first is to help the disciples understand that the people are their concern. That they are to be shepherds of them. And they will in the months ahead and they will in the years ahead understand this much more fully. They don't understand all the implications of this now, but they will. They're being discipled by Jesus to have care and compassion and greater concern for the people that are before them. They have some of it. But Jesus wants it to grow. He wants them to care for the flock, to feed the sheep, to love, to protect, and to guide them. You give, He's telling them. They are your responsibility. There's that wonderful scene at the end of the Gospel of John where, where Peter, that apostle we've just spoken about that was so bold and declaring there's nowhere else to go, Jesus. Maybe the apostle who seems to have the greatest measure of faith as you're going through the Gospel accounts and, and Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times and Peter says, no way, Lord. Not me. Remember, I'm the one that keeps confessing that you're the Christ. I was the first to do it and I'm Always the one to do it. She said, no, you're going to deny me three times. Remember at the end of the Gospel of John when after Peter has indeed denied the Lord Jesus three times. 
And he's now on that beach with the resurrected Christ. And they're walking along the beach and Jesus asks Peter, he doesn't call him Peter, he goes back to his Greek name and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you remember Jesus' response? Feed my lambs. And then he asks him a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. He then asks him a third time, Simon, do you love me? And at that point, John tells us that Peter was grieved because the Lord asked him for a third time, do you love me? And no doubt it is because coming fresh to his mind is his own threefold denial of Christ. And he's being asked again. And it's all coming fresh back to him. Which is a wonderful act of compassion by our Savior. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter erupts. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus responds, feed my sheep. If you love me. You will love my people. If you adore me, you will adore my people. If you are following me, you will have compassion on my people. There is no category for a Christian who loves Christ and does not love Christ's people. That's not a possibility. If you love me, you love my people. And you are to pour out your life for my people. He wants the disciples to understand that they must care for His people, go above and beyond for the people of God. That they are to pour out their life for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ, though He is exhausted, gives without restraint to His people. He gives even when it hurts. And we're to especially give when it hurts. Because that's true love. He wants His disciples to understand that they are to give in such a way. Do you understand, dear Christian, that when you were called to Christ, you were called to His people. You were called to His people. You were called to serve Him. And you were called to serve them. They go hand in hand. So very practically, when you come here on Sunday morning, why are you here? 
when you walk through those doors or you walk through those doors, what is it that's upon your mind? Is it purely about, I want to see who speaks to me today. I want to have my needs met in the worship service today. Sing songs that I like. Hear a sermon that teaches me. Hear a prayer that stirs my soul. All good things. You should desire to see that in worship. But you also walk through those doors and say, I'm here because I want to give glory to Christ and I'm going to seek to minister to the people that sit next to me in the pew and across the room and in the fellowship hall and in the classes. Because I'm here for them. There's no isolated Christian living. We seek to minister to one another in a way that it costs. Where it's not always comfortable. Where we have to reach outside our comfort zones. This is one of the things I most love about this church. Is so many of you are so good at this. We're told regularly by visitors to this church that they find you to be incredibly friendly. You come up and you greet them. And you get to know them. And you invite them over to your houses for lunch. I love that through the week, so many of you are seeking to meet with one another and minister to one another. This is why we talk about connect, equip, serve. We're connecting to Christ and we're connecting to the church. And then the fruit of that on the end is that we're serving. We're serving Christ and we're serving one another. You find a place to serve. And you pour out yourself in service to Christ and His bride. If we all looked at one another with the compassion of Christ, we'd be moved outside of ourselves and towards one another. And that would be absolutely dynamic if that was true of every one of us in this room. There's that odd thing that when we are in a context together and if we're all concerned and consumed with ourselves that no one, no one's needs are met. No one's. No one is helped in the midst. And yet, if we are all gathering together and we're all looking out for the other, then every need is met. Every person is ministered to. This is why... The church in Acts, it said of them that there was none who did without. They met together and they ministered to one another. They met one another's needs. When a church is filled with people doing that, coming to serve rather than to be served, it becomes a place of dynamic spiritual activity. More focuses upon Christ and one another. More we come, become like a church that we desire to be that impacts not only one another, but impacts the city and beyond that we've been placed to minister in. You feed them, Jesus says. Understand your responsibility of helping others walk down the path of righteousness. 
The second reason I believe Jesus tells the disciples you give them something to eat is because He wants them to look to Him in faith. They're under shepherds and they are to care for the flock, for these people, but He is the great shepherd of these people. They are to care for the flock, but they cannot care for the flock apart from Christ. The disciples, they had wanted to send away the crowd to find something to eat. They had compassion. The disciples are to be commended for that, but they, they don't want to see these people go hungry that night. But now Jesus is going to show them that they need power to meet that need. There's only one source for that power. The disciples look at what they don't have. They look at the five loaves and two fish. As the other Gospel writers tell us, there was a little boy in the crowd that had the five loaves, five barley loaves and two fish. And they say in desperation in verse 17 in Matthew, this is all we have. And Jesus wonderfully says in verse 18, bring them here to me. This is all we have. Bring it to me, Jesus says. We often look at what we don't have. And it often stops us in our service of one another. I don't have the intellect, I don't have the emotional reserve, I don't have the gifts, I don't have the knowledge, the personality, the ability to speak, and we balk as Jesus has called us to service. But He wanted us to see what we don't have so that we are forced to look at what we do have in Him. When we're weak, He is strong. And anything worth doing for Christ is always something that is beyond ourselves. He calls us not just to faithful service. He calls us to faith-filled service. That is a kind of service where you have to step out in faith. Where it takes more than just relying upon your abilities. Where it takes relying upon Him. We bring what we have to Him, and with it He can do more than we could ask or imagine. As has been said often in the church, little becomes much in the Master's hands. But we only have two fish, Jesus, and five loaves, Jesus. I don't have a lot of time or energy, Jesus. I'm burdened with my own problems. Yes, but little becomes much in our Master's hands. You're connected to Christ and to His people you serve. And most often that service comes from what you do not have. So that you're forced to rely upon Him in faith. And Jesus gives the increase. You would think that at this point in the Gospel, the disciples would have understood this. They have seen Miracle after miracle, but it's often easier to confess and to believe in Christ's help and sufficiency in the abstract than it is to affirm it in the moment. How often have they seen Christ provide? How often have we seen Christ provide? And yet, in the moment, we worry. 
Jesus is reminding them that in their insufficiency, they are to look to Him in faith. He says to them in verse 18, bring them here to Me. Bring them here to Me. Bring your small offerings. Bring your limited talents. Bring your minimal abilities, your narrow understandings, your mean resources. And now watch what I do with them. He loves, loves to use weak vessels. It gives him greater glory. He takes the loaves. And after ordering the crowds to gather in small groups where they're laying down on the grass, they are resting in the grass. In small groups so that there are aisles between all of the different groups so that the disciples can then walk through those aisles. Jesus takes the bread He looks to His Father in heaven and He gives thanks. And then He breaks it and He gives it to the disciples. And the disciples as the under-shepherds of that flock go out and they give it to the people. He ministers through them. Through the disciples. He ministers to 8,000? 50,000? 55,000? He ministers through the little that they have by surrendering it to Him in faith. He ministers through them to all of those people. Matthew tells us in verse 20, they ate and were satisfied. And then the disciples went to collect the baskets and each found a basket full of leftover pieces of bread. It's almost like he is saying to each of them as they each collect a basket full of leftover bread, my grace is more than sufficient for you. I can do far more abundantly than you ask or think. Just think about this week about the Lord of glory, and you think, ah, in some ways you think it would be amazing if he had done just the exact right amount of bread, right? Like he knew what would satiate the people in that crowd, he knew what would satisfy them, and so he made just the exact right amount of bread. Nothing more was needed. He knew exactly what they needed. He gives more than what is sufficient for His people. He's not stingy. And He wants us to see that. So let us serve Him by looking to Him in faith and expecting a more than sufficient provision. We have a Savior of unmatched compassion, of abounding truth, of sufficient supply. And He has given us an incredible ministry. He's given you the privilege of ministering through you to those around you. And He's also given you the responsibility. He's the great shepherd and we follow His lead. Serve one another in gladness as we seek to serve Him. Let's pray.
For Jesus, we do give you praise as the great shepherd of the sheep. We confess our insufficiency to do what you have called us to. Forgive us where we often think that our talents, our abilities, our charisma, our knowledge is sufficient. In most cases, we don't feel that way. And forgive us that that often halts us in our tracks. Forgetting that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. That you will minister to your people in all compassion. That you are one who looks upon them and gives them the gift of truth. And that you are one who sufficiently supplies all of our needs. And may we not cower in the face of our lack, but go forward in faith and faithfulness as we depend upon You. And look for a bountiful harvest. And then return to You with thanksgiving, giving You all the glory for all that You have done in our midst and through us. For You are worthy of praise. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.